Hello at Astrogeo, a podcast of the Weltraumreporter. I am Karl Urban and today we have the first English episode for you. It is an interview I did in fall of 2019. The result of this was a half an hour radio broadcast in the German public radio. This interview is now being published as additional material to a text I wrote for the Weltraumreporter, Space is Becoming a Battlefield, which is in German. But as I did this interview in English, I present this podcast episode in English. I met my interview partner in a park in Geneva in Switzerland. His name is Daniel Porras. He is an American and works in Geneva as a researcher at the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. I became aware of Daniel through a paper he wrote in 2006. It is called The Common Heritage of Outer Space, Equal Benefits for Most of Mankind. His work plays a role in the very end of the interview, but first we talk about the security situation in outer space and whether we might break something up there soon. Could you um, introduce yourself briefly and um, what you're doing here? My name is Daniel Porras. I'm the Space Security Fellow at the UN Institute for Disarmament Research. We are an independent think tank that is located inside of the United Nations, and our work is primarily to help states deal with issues related to nuclear security, uh, new emerging technology security, and different types of uh, disarmament and uh, arms control regulations. My specific area is working on outer space security. So this is activities that have to do with uh, military and conflict-related activities in outer space. So what, what is your day-to-day -day work? So what, do you, what do you have on your desk? So my work has three main streams to it. The mainstream is to do research on what is happening right now with space security. What are states doing? What types of new capabilities are being developed? And which of those capabilities might be used as weapons? The other big thing that I do is to try and come up with ideas that help states address those new technologies. If there are going to be new weapons in space, can we come up with agreements that will minimize the impact that those weapons will have on the space environment? Uh, and then the third part, of course, is supporting our member states. Uh, member states meet regularly. They often have questions about, okay, you know, what is this technology? What can it do? You know, what is an anti-satellite missile? What is a co-orbital drone? These are all new types of things that diplomats don't necessarily know about. And in order to be able to address these issues and promote their interests, they have to have some idea about what, what these things are. So we try to help them understand the technical side better. UNITY is funded by the UN uh, member states, right? So we are, we are uh, funded through voluntary contributions. We don't receive money through the United Nations, but we receive money directly from states. So the Space Security Program, for example, has a number of supporters, including the Russian Federation and China, uh, Australia, Canada, Switzerland, Sweden. Um, these folks have all been very supportive uh, of our work. And I think it's a good sign that we have a very well-rounded group of, of countries that contribute. Even Brazil contributed to us uh, this last year. And I think that's because they see that there is a lot of value in our work that is relevant to everyone. Not just major space powers, but even smaller countries that are space beneficiaries. Countries that may not have their own satellites, but they depend on satellites. They're starting to see that space security is very relevant for them. 
you just talked about um, like diplomats coming to you and asking for spe specific things and um, getting into like space topics. Where do they come from? So, so are there more from spacefaring nations or even from developing countries without any access to space yet? I would say that the bulk of the countries who come to us at the moment and the countries we engage with the most are actually more middle space powers. So they're countries who have developed some capabilities, have some technologies, but they're still trying to decide what, what policies, what strategies they want to have in outer space. A lot of these countries rely on space for telecommunications, for global navigation, for Earth observation. You know, just being able to take pictures from space is very important for them. However, they don't necessarily have the capabilities yet to start a war in space, to destroy somebody else's space objects. So for them, they really see threats to the space systems that they have now, and they're still wondering, well, how can we protect those systems? Can we protect those through diplomatic means? Or are we going to have to start deploying defensive weapons in space because somebody else is developing offensive weapons? If we take just a brief overview of, of sp interest in, in, in space in general um, right now, so, so what's, what's happening? Who's, who's getting to the field? Who's already there? So, so what, what, what do you observe? Sure. Well, there are two big trends we have to keep an eye on at the moment. The first is the fact that the whole world is becoming dependent on space. You, know, you and I are dependent on space every day for you know, being able to call somebody, being able to send emails, as well as you know, just being able to use Google Maps. Uh, the other actor, though, that's also gaining a lot of uh, space dependency is the military. The military uses outer space capabilities every day also from something as simple and basic as communications to also early warning detection systems, uh, guidance systems for missiles. You know, even uh, if nuclear weapons were ever going to get shot, they will probably be controlled through satellites. So the military sees that it's a very big deal for them. And we're constantly seeing that the militaries are getting more and more dependent on their space capabilities. The other trend is that If you have space capabilities, it's only a matter of time before people start developing counter space capabilities, which is you know, different types of technologies that can um, make sure that a rival can't use space, that they can't use their satellites in the same way as they would ordinarily. Now, that can include any number of things from blowing up a satellite with a missile to jamming a satellite with a much stronger uh, radio communication signal. It can also include hacking. And what we're seeing is that a lot of countries who are uh, evolving their militaries are not just saying, well, how do we shoot down airplanes and how do we blow up tanks? They're also saying, how do we neutralize the satellites so that our opponents can't see us or so that our opponents can't communicate with each other? And, and asymmetric warfare plays a big role in this because a lot of countries who could not necessarily take on someone like the United States or Russia or China, they're saying, well... If we're going to get in a fight with any of these big countries, we have to be able to neutralize their space capabilities. When you take the um, temporal perspective, so, I mean, conflict in space isn't really something new because there was ideas of th this kind of conflict during Cold War, even during 60s when, when a space flight just had started. So, so how is it differently today compared to, to the 60s and 70s? In the 60s and 70s, there were only two countries that were developing those capabilities. Now there are many. 
Um, after the Cold War, we saw almost like a moratorium on the development of this type of technology, largely because uh, Russia just didn't have money to spend on it, and the United States didn't see any other rivals in space that it, or that it was worth developing this technology. And I think the, the United States in particular kind of uh, let their foot off the gas, as it were. But in 2007, uh, China destroyed a weather satellite, and that really kicked things off again. It was a big signal to the rest of the world that, okay, space is a very big deal, and people are now getting ready to, to neutralize those, those capabilities. Uh, the very next year, in 2008, the United States very conveniently had an excuse. Uh, well, they had a reason, but uh, many, in the, many experts in the field today uh, say that it was an excuse to uh, destroy another satellite and to show that the United States was still the most capable uh, country in terms of counter space. Now, after that, we saw a period where different countries were developing different types of technologies. Uh, a number of countries have been developing these maneuverable satellites. Uh, they're very small can be used for a number of things like repairing or refueling satellites, but could in theory also be used for things like espionage or even destroying another satellite. Uh, we know the Soviets had this technology and uh, Russia has continued to develop those that tech. The United States has it. China's been developing it. And I think that's what started making countries uh, a lot more worried about uh, counter space capabilities. Uh, in fact, we just heard that France is establishing a space force and that they're even considering... I don't know how much veracity there is to this, but they are also considering putting lasers that can blind other satellites onto their uh, their satellites. So now we don't just have counter-space capabilities, we have counter-counter space capabilities. Uh, we've also heard that Japan has decided recently uh, to start deploying uh, Guardian satellites, which would be small, maneuverable drones uh, of their own, that if somebody gets too close, um, they'll be able to engage them. Uh, and of course, in March, India also destroyed a satellite with a missile. So we are seeing a trend that more and more countries want these capabilities. And some of the some of these capabilities, when they're used, even just in tests, uh, can have very bad consequences for others. Um, going back to the India and China test, they destroyed satellites, and a lot of the trash that was up there will remain. Some for much longer than others. Uh, but this trash can theoretically hit something else. What is interesting for me is that each statement of like Morendra Modi or um, Manu Macron um, on on these initiatives and in, in these um, anti-satellite systems is uh, mostly, most of the time, the first sentence is they do not want to engage into um, arms race in outer space. So... Why? Why is that? So, so are they really thinking that they are just taking defensive measures? They do not want to be the first to strike someone. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to be the first to openly strike somebody else's satellite in space. Um, but we also have to wonder what is an attack in space? You know, what is a strike? What is uh, the use of force in outer space? And at the moment, there's not really an answer to that. I don't think anybody is going to want to be the first one who destroys someone else's satellite with a missile because that will create a lot of trash. It's very visual. Uh, there is a, a very emotional reaction that people get when you talk about blowing up satellites. Uh, also, blowing up a single satellite isn't necessarily useful, say, if you're attacking uh, a U.S. satellite. In the United States military will have many redundant satellites that they can just use in place. So doing a 
a substantial and significant strike on the United States space systems would require a lot of missiles and a lot of drones or you know, something very big. However, you can jam satellites quite easily, uh, or at least if you have a sufficiently powerful uh, power source and if you have um, some of the right equipment. Uh, it's not terribly complicated to do this, and we know that jamming has become much more uh, prevalent. Uh, my institute, uh, Unidir, just published a report on electronic and cyber warfare in space, and one of the things that we have seen is that while most of the discussions in space security revolve around destructive capabilities that create debris and make a huge explosion, what we're actually seeing is that there is a, a ramping up of a lot of uh, electronic interference. And that can also have consequences for civilians. Um, so from that sense, it does make sense that certain militaries want to have dedicated forces who can manage their space systems. Now, if we look at what a space force is intended to be, it's very different from what is often portrayed in, uh, in the general discussion. It's not Star Wars. It's not, it's not necessarily Star Wars. Uh, you know... The U.S. Space Force, for example, if you look at the Space Policy Directive 4, which is the order that Donald, that uh, President Trump gave to the Pentagon to develop a, a space force, or at least a proposal for a space force, it's fairly sensible. It's about aligning the chain of command and about making it easier for the Air Force to purchase space capabilities. There's not a lot in there, or there, there really isn't anything in there that says we want to attack others in space. However, the way that it was presented by President Trump at the, at the unveiling ceremony, it casts a lot of doubt because he did use words like dominance in outer space. He used words like offensive weapons in outer space. And that sends a signal to countries like China and Russia that they may also have to prepare themselves for conflict in space. Now, for countries like France and for Japan, they see the development of certain uh, capabilities from other countries like Russia, like China, as being uh, potentially threatening for their own. So they are taking steps to potentially protect themselves, but it does raise the question, are we now in an arms race in outer space? Uh, we've done some research on this in this area as well, and one of the things that we've found is, you know, there are three characteristics to an arms race. One, there has to be a rivalry, so more than one country that is not getting along. Two, there has to be an increase in certain types of weapons that are more or less related to each other, and it, it certainly seems like we're seeing that. And then finally is, is there greater spending on these types of weapons? Now that's where it gets a little bit tricky. Uh, no military is really increasing their spending so much as the spending is just getting moved around. Uh, I think China's a great example. They've only seen like 1% growth in their, uh, in their military spending for years. It's like clockwork. Now, some of that spending is going more towards uh, counter space capabilities. But typically, when you hear statements from the Chinese on this issue, they say, well, this isn't breaking form with anything we've been doing in the past. We are a modern military. We obviously have to develop modern capabilities, and that's just what we're doing. I think the United States would also take that line that they are seeking to be the most uh, effective military force in the world, and therefore counter space is just one more element that is required for, for, that, kind of, uh, for, for that kind of positioning. Do you think or do you see that um, those actors are also um, trying to um, get into disarmament 
in, in some way. Uh, so, so what is what, what is bilateral and, and multilateral di diplomacy doing in the meantime? Uh, what's happening at the diplomatic level? Uh, as I was explaining, um, I mean, for decades now, the discussions in the United Nations have really been divided into two camps. Uh, on the one hand, you have a, a group of countries, many countries, who are led by Russia and China, and they have been proposing a treaty on the prevention of the placement of weapons in outer space. Now, this idea has been floating around more or less since 2000, and, and they've been developing it, but they presented it to the UN in 2008, and didn't get a great reception, and then went back, redrafted it, and represented it in 2014. Uh, unfortunately, uh, another group of states, which is much smaller, um, but also contains many space powers, and predominantly led by you know, the United States and a lot of the European countries, but also includes like Australia, Japan, Canada. These countries tend to feel that the proposed treaty on the prevention of the placement of weapons in space is conceptually flawed, in particular because you cannot define what a weapon is. A lot of the technology related to space is both dual-use and multi-use by nature. So taking the example of uh, co-orbital drones, for, you know, for one, Anyone could use those for, you know, good purposes or, you know, constructive purposes. Things like refueling, like repairing, uh, you know, even removing trash from space. Uh, the U.S. military could do that. The, the Russian military could do those activities. Likewise, one of those drones could also be used to remove a functional satellite from space. So at, at what point does it become a weapon? Well, many people would say it becomes a weapon when you use it as a weapon. But... If that's the case, then you could deploy many of these in space under the pretext that they're supposed to be for uh, constructive uses, and at the last second you just decide to use it for something else. So in that sense, it's very difficult to define what a weapon is, and then it's also very difficult to verify whether people are uh, keeping their, you know, maintaining their obligations under that kind of a treaty. Now, whether that's true or not... Is, is difficult to say. We've done our own studies on what we can observe and what we can monitor in outer space. And at least our findings are that in the, in the highest orbits, we can actually see quite a bit. Uh, but it's still not enough uh, to necessarily be able to verify uh, the terms of something like the, the PPWT, this uh, Prevention of the Placement of Weapons in Space. So the second group of countries, they propose not to have a treaty. They would prefer to have political agreements, voluntary measures, which are essentially promises that states make to say, we're going to try to behave like responsible actors in space. Uh, they prefer to see what are called transparency and confidence building measures, things like notifications about launches, sharing data about where things are in space, and even just sharing space policies. You know, if a country comes up with a new policy about how they want to use outer space, let the rest of the world know so that when they see certain activities happening, they can put them into context. Um, now, some countries are very open with their policies. Uh, the United States publishes, uh, has published a number of space policies, and sometimes these can be uh, both soothing for allies, but it can also be a little bit alarming for, uh, for rivals. Uh, whereas China, for example, they don't really share the, any of their space policies. So when, when you see Chinese activities in space, I think especially for Western countries, because they don't have a, 
a context to fit those into uh, to fit those, those activities into, then it makes things a little bit more nervous. What is your feeling? What what should be done in a real, realistic sense? There, there were in, in other fields disarmament successful disarmament policies um, in, in in past decades, like at the end of the Cold War. So so what could work in the current situation? Or are you optimistic that? they could be resolved? It's a very difficult question. The biggest challenge that we have at the moment actually has nothing to do with outer space, and it's just a question of trust. We're at a moment where relationships between some of the big military powers, who also happen to be really big space powers, the the levels of trust are at an all-time low. Uh, Some of the folks who uh, have been working at the United Nations for many, many years have, have told me in the past that Maybe it doesn't feel like the worst ever, but it it certainly is down there. That being said, one of the problems that we've had with our discussions in the past is that I think we've tried to take on too much at once. So, for example, the Treaty on the Prevention of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space, it tries to address all weapons. That's very difficult to do because the different types of weapons that are emerging are also different. You know, anti-satellite missiles are very different from jamming, and that's also very different from hacking. So one of the findings that we have made in our research and and in the reports that we've been putting out is that we should maybe try to focus on certain issues where all states have an equal interest. Instead of trying to take on everything at once, we should try to focus on those areas where there is some convergence of, of interests. Uh, One of those areas, for example, is um, destructive anti-satellite testing. So in in March, when India destroyed their satellite, they did it at a relatively low altitude of 280 kilometers. But a lot of that debris still made it up beyond 1,000 kilometers. And it is going to take uh, months or potentially even a couple of years for all of that debris to come out of orbit. Now, India wasn't attacking anyone. They weren't necessarily threatening anyone. They weren't even uh, trying to do this in a, in a hostile manner. They were just developing their own military capabilities. And yet, there is all this trash and debris that could hit anyone's satellite. It could hit an American satellite. It could hit a Chinese satellite. It could hit uh, an Ecuadorian satellite or a, a Colombian satellite. Or even their own satellites. Or even their own satellites. So th- we think this is an area where people could come together and say, all right, look, Nobody. It's not in anyone's interest to be destroying satellites. There are ways of developing these types of missiles or these types of capabilities without creating the trash. Like, for example, you could use uh, a virtual target. You know, you just say, "All right, as long as the missile is in this area at this time, then under our calculations, it will have been a successful operation." Uh, so you, last year, uh, Unidir put out a report, and we made uh, a recommendation that three principles be adopted. I got three principles down into five words. No debris, low debris, and notification. So the principle of no debris is that if, you, uh, if you're going to do a test, don't create debris. Low debris, if, you're gonna do a, if you have to create debris, you do it at an altitude low enough to where the debris will come out in a relatively short amount of time. But we would have to agree what that short amount of time is. And then notification, you know, tell somebody so that somebody doesn't make a, you know, make a mistake in in interpreting what the activity is. And all of this is based on some work that the United Nations had already done uh, back in 2013 on this issue. But now that India has just done a test, I think there is a better understanding of why this is important and why adopting, uh, you know, some guidelines like this or, or some principles like this would be towards 
everyone's benefit. And even if we're not going to address the issue of, you know, somebody potentially putting missiles in space that can target things on the ground, we at least do address one of the many challenges. And after we, you know, if, if we can tackle one challenge, even if it's small, you know, the sort of the low-hanging fruit, as you were, then maybe we can at least remember what it's like to come to an agreement. Because it has been so long since we've, uh, since we've been able to adopt anything related to space security that I think just remembering what it's like to achieve something, to, to move the goalpost, uh, then I think we can start working on other things and develop more trust and develop better relations. And then later on, we can start talking about some of the hairier issues. So one um, um, aspect which is important for, for gaining trust again is um, to have a good observation what's what's going on. Um, there is this space situation awareness systems like the most efficient one is run by the US military and they are not sharing the data um, with um, or they are not sharing all the data and, and just with some of the um, other spacefaring nations. Um, But there are also ideas like using um, public information, like data from, from astronomical telescopes mm -hmm. and, and put it together. I talked to Teresa Hitch and I think yes, she, she was involved in your in institute in the past. Director. Yeah. Um, and, and she told me like three years ago about this, um, this idea. So, so how, how, how good is this observation and observation sharing um, right now? So... Um, What needs to be done in this respect? Uh, I'm glad you bring it up because this, this is actually the subject of our most recent report on verification in space. Um, in the last 10 years, we have seen an explosion in terms of space situational awareness because there are so many companies now that want to know what is happening in space. Now, you point out that the U.S. STRATCOM is providing most of the space situational awareness data that we get today. However, it is not always necessarily the most accurate data, uh, and they do limit who they share their data with. Now, they do put a lot of information out uh, for the public already, and through certain either multilateral or bilateral agreements, they also share data uh, with other countries. Now, it is also true that the U.S. military has, in the past, been very coy about where are their spy satellites and what can they possibly do. Uh, I think because so many new systems for space situational awareness have started coming online in the last 10 years, the U.S. Air Force has changed that policy and they're trying to declassify a lot more of those satellites. And that's, I think that's a good sign. Now, why do that? Well, one, we know for a fact that you know, Russia uh, does have a fairly, uh, a very sophisticated system. Uh, they're also working uh, with a number of other partners to have more telescopes and more sensors around the world. Do, do the Russians share the data? Not as much. Uh, so there, there is an international space observation network. Uh, they also have the Russian VPOL system. Um, one of my colleagues uh, who Unidir is working, now, working with now, uh, Dr. Marie Baja from the University of Texas, he runs a, uh, a public database called Astriograph, and he gets data from, from the Americans, from the Russians, and from a number of private companies. And then he puts all that data into his system. He has his own algorithm where he uh, takes the data that he receives and he produces a whole new chart that shows you where he thinks objects are. And what we're seeing is that there are actually a number of country or, uh, companies and, and civil agencies that are starting to do this with their own data. 
So either they'll pull information from, from the U.S. government, and then they'll ap apply their own computing to sharpen it and to get a better picture of what's going on in space. Um, there's also a, a number of private companies that are taking this even to a, a much higher level. Uh, there's a company that's only been in, in existence now since, I think, 2008 called ExoAnalytics, and they've got more than 315 sensors and telescopes out around the world now watching what's going on in the geosynchronous orbit. Uh, there's a private company called uh, AGI, Analytical Graphics Incorporated, and they take data from the U.S. military, from uh, exoanalytics, and they also apply their own algorithms. And right now, they're supplying some of the most exquisite, most high-end information about what's going on in geosynchronous orbit. So in that area, I think we actually do have a pretty good picture of what's going on in geo. We've got way more telescopes, way more sensors and radars that are monitoring things in geo than we ever did before. Now, a little bit lower down, you know, once you start getting into the lower Earth orbit, it's a lot harder to see there because you can't use telescopes to, to see what's going on. You need uh, things like radars, um, and you don't get as you don't uh, you don't see the objects as often. So your your algorithms get much different, much less information to to work with. However, we're going to have to do something with how we monitor the low Earth orbit very soon, especially with the the introduction of mega constellations. So that's these big constellations that will have thousands and thousands of satellites. Uh, we already saw this incident uh, a couple weeks ago where the European Space Agency had to move uh, one of their weather satellites because there was a possibility of a collision with, uh, with a SpaceX satellite. Well, there are no rules as to who needs to move in that situation. And in fact, the U.S. STRATCOM gave both the European Space Agency and uh, SpaceX warnings that there was a possibility of collision. But the European Space Agency, you know, they said, well, we're, our data tells us that there's a high probability of collision. And SpaceX said, well, our data tells us that there's a low probability of collisions. So we're not going to move. Um, and, and ultimately, the European Space Agency moved. But, but if, if both uh, decide to move into the, the, uh, the same that's, direction... That's the other, yeah. the other gamble. You don't necessarily know if you're moving away from each other or into each other's path. But that just goes to show just how uh, little information we have about what's going on in the low Earth orbit. I mean, I, I would suspect that SpaceX probably has transponders on all of those satellites, and they probably had uh, a better idea of where that bird was than, than the European Space Agency or even the U.S. military. And, and that's why they probably took the decision uh, not to move. However, they haven't disclosed whether that was the case or whether uh, they even had the capabilities to, to move out of the way. And so it leaves a lot of doubt as to what these mega constellations might mean and what, what we can see and what we can observe in the low Earth orbit. Do you think that this kind of trans tra transparency, when there's even more and more data like this coming up, um, like like from from different orbits, what what's going on um, into the public sphere, uh, could this reduce tensions in outer space? Yes, I think just knowing uh, what objects uh, are up in space, and and hopefully by making it more public, we can start establishing some ground rules as to what is responsible behavior in space. For example, when people drive on the highway, or you know, if I wanted to drive from Geneva to Paris, I wouldn't just drive across someone's farm. There are certain roads, there are speed limits, there are certain rules of the road that anyone will have to adhere to, from the fanciest Ferrari to the smallest uh, Fiat. 
every, you know, there is a very basic set of rules. I think by establishing a norm, a baseline norm of behavior, that gives contrast to other activities. So then you can start pointing out to others that are getting out of the lines, who are stepping out of the boundaries, and you can say, ah, that's abnormal behavior. This is what a normal person does. What you're doing is abnormal and could potentially be construed as threatening. And by doing that, suddenly it reduces the number of possible threats from many to hopefully just a few. Uh, I mean, even if you try to count right now how many satellites are in space that could legitimately pose a, a threat to stability, you know, it's probably a dozen, maybe two dozen tops. Uh, but because we don't necessarily know what's going on in space or, or what all the different objects are that have been deployed, at the moment, I think a lot of the militaries just assume that everything is a worst-case scenario. What, what about potentially aggressive um, behavior? Like um, the, the Macron initiative um, was um, motivated by this approaches of Russian mm -hmm. satellites towards French satellites. Um, Could this also be addressed? I mean, there, even though there is, in this case, there is um, transparency about it because um, I, I don't think the Russians really um, said they, they didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what, what could be done in those cases? So part of the problem with uh, the activities that the Russians were engaging in is that, again, they're not the only ones. Um, the United States has also engaged in this activity for a number of years with their own... Uh, um, close proximity operation vehicles. Uh, there's also the X-37B, for example, which is a uh, space spy shuttle, uh, which no, one's, no one knows what, to, what it does yet. Uh, everyone's best guess is that it's some kind of a technology testing bed and also probably uh, a, you know, technology for listening in on other people's communications, which is not unlike what the, uh, the Russian Lucha Limp has been accused of. So in that sense, I think we have to come to an understand, or at least come to terms with the fact that what the Russians were doing is more widespread than than just the the case of the Russians. And so, so not too much uh, pointing. Yeah. We don't necessarily want to point too many fingers yeah. because, well, uh, as I keep telling everyone, there are no there are no good guys and bad guys in space. It's just a lot of people who are trying to look out for their interests, for their national interests. But because it is outer space your national interest may conflict with everyone's general interest in being able to use space the way that we've been enjoying it up to now. So one of the possibilities that we, we might look at is, for example, establishing some safety zones where we say, hey, you cannot come within 100 kilometers of my satellite or within 50 kilometers of my satellite and if you do, without my permission. And if you do, I will assume that you're doing something wrong, that you're uh, trying to um, either listen in on my communications or you know, you, that you could potentially pose a threat. And therefore, now that we're seeing the deployment of counter-counter space capabilities, somebody might you know, uh, threaten to respond and, and take action against a drone. The, that's one of the big dangers that I see, especially in the geosynchronous orbit, where we might end up with a situation where... Uh, either an American or a Russian or a Chinese spy satellite, you know, or one of these drones uh, gets too close to somebody else's satellite. Uh, somebody doesn't take too kindly to it and they engage potentially like a Guardian drone satellite and then the two have it out in a little robotics war in orbit. 
but in geosynchronous orbit, it's such a tight area that if those two robots were to destroy each other, and now suddenly you've just added more trash to an area that is highly populated with very, very expensive critical satellites. And that just adds on to the problem. So I think establishing some rules about how close you can get to someone would be helpful in at least uh, reducing tensions. And, and that's something that we can verify uh, with, this, with the space situational awareness capabilities that, that we have today or that we'll have very soon. That is something that you could actually keep an eye on and say, hey, you're getting too close to me. You need to back off. Otherwise, you're in breach or you're in violation of you know, certain guidelines or rules that, that we might establish. One, one more thing uh, concerning this um, deplo international diplomacy, um, which is mostly um, done by, by countries or like um, institutions like the EU, but um, there are more actors in this field, like, like companies which are more and more involved because they put a lot of um, um, money into space. Um, are they pushing also into the diplomatic sphere or do they have measures to do so or do they want to do that? This is an area that we're also working in quite a lot and we're trying to find the appropriate mode to include the commercial sector in these discussions. One, they're the ones who are developing a lot of the technology that is being used. Uh, it's not necessarily governments that are, that are developing it. You know, they contract out for, for companies to, to build these things. The other area where we see it's very important for companies to become more aware is that governments are beginning to purchase services directly. Well, they have been for a while, but increasingly uh, they want to buy services directly from, uh, from commercial space op uh, actors. Now, what does that do to the status of the commercial actor? If there's a civilian satellite that is providing bandwidth for... Uh, drone strikes, or if it's providing telecommunication services for battalions that are out in Afghanistan, and another, you know, one of the members of the opposition decide, oh, we're going to jam the satellite. Well, you might jam the satellite and the, the military aspect of it, but you might also jam all the other aspects of that satellite. And they might have, you know, dozens of other commercial sat uh, actors who are depending on that satellite for services. Well, what happens to them when they're no longer able to, to get their signal? You know, and what, what about the insurance companies? Will insurance companies provide you with a payout if you have been the subject of an act of war? At what point does a civilian satellite or commercial satellite become a military actor? Uh, so this is another uh, study that we're trying to get into, and we're going to be holding uh, an informal consultation group very soon where we're going to be bringing experts from government and uh, industry and academia together just to make sure that we're all looking at the same at the same set of issues and just say look before uh, a government or a private company engages in a defense contract uh, here are some issues that they need to think about do you think there's also the possibilities that for example in the u.s and and also in europe where those industries are quite strong already um could start to push or are they already pushing pol politics to be less aggressive um very few companies are, are taking that line 
there are a few actors who have come out and and said that governments need to start working on space security issues because you know if a big conflict were to break out in space that's going to destabilize the environment and it makes things much more expensive for example if there is a live fire conflict really regarding or involving satellites and people start blowing up satellites it generates a lot more trash which then makes it more difficult for operators to deploy small satellites in space that could potentially make it more expensive to launch it makes it more uh, makes the satellites potentially heavier it could potentially impact on the lifespan of satellites how long they, they can be used and it it just negates the gains that people have made in terms of reducing the price of access to space so some companies are aware of that but by and large especially in the United States private companies let the the US government take the lead on those issues but i don't necessarily think that they know about all the different threats that are emerging or all the different risks that might be up there a lot of companies are still under the impression that they're operating in a pardon the pun but operating in a safe space but because of the new technologies that are coming out and the fact that some of the some of these technologies are now getting more widespread space is no longer necessarily so safe and secure companies may have to start taking different measures whether they be you know hardening your satellite before you launch it uh putting in new types of cybersecurity into your uh computer system you know some of these steps might need to be taken in- including maybe even coming up with new insurance policies uh to make sure that you're covered in case something happens the broader perspective i want to take i, I read your paper of from 2006 which um uses this common heritage mm-hmm. um picture um and it's quite long a time ago now so um we we live i think we live in in different times now so this this idea of a common heritage which, which really comes from the early days of of space travel um is it still there today in the heads of 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 the actors in space or did we already cross that <laughs> or leave that domain Yes, that was that was a long time ago from when I wrote that paper and I think my position on a lot of those ideas have certainly evolved. But the idea of a common heritage is still very much there in the sense that space is a common space. It's there for everyone to use and that's why there is this uh what they call the tragedy of the commons where people start taking on or people start doing certain activities that makes it more difficult for everyone to operate not just one particular actor i think certain countries that have been uh, operating in space for a number of years now often say well space is becoming crowded it's getting there's too much traffic it's getting congested and part of their fear is that new actors who are coming up are going to make it more difficult to do the things that people have been doing for for a long time now it's clogging up the the common space. I I tend to stay away from that particular term because I think a big part of the problem at the moment is that we just don't have any rules that maximize how we use outer space. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about rules of the road. If everyone is just driving across the farms and driving across, you know, the parking lots and everywhere else at any speed, it's very difficult to get the maximum number of cars out and available. Whereas if you set up some some pretty basic Uh, rules or guidelines we might start making it easier for everyone to access the common spaces the common heritage mm-hmm. i mean these this 
tragedy of the comms, which is really interesting to read about, because most of our current global problems could be um, um, addressed to, to to this idea. Um, and I mean, there have been um, global problems, environmental problems, which had be addressed successfully successfully because they were urgently urg very urgent like the flu fluorocarbon um what's what's the F yeah. fc um yeah, what's the, the German? yeah you, you know what i mean the, the, the montreal um, protocol from the late 80s uh, so maybe in the space domain it's not urgent enough yet i mean there has been this incident of this um iridium and um, cosmos collision and also this chinese uh, anti-satellite test which um, made a lot of um, small pieces um, but maybe we should uh, the global um, community has to get closer to a point where it could see what's at, 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 uh, at stake or uh, at risk yes and that's precisely my fear that we are a very reactionary species and so we usually don't take action until it's absolutely necessary and perhaps frighteningly so i'm terrified that the incident that will finally uh, you know, call us to action is going to be something involving space debris and an astronaut an actual person uh, i'm terrified that something would happen to the international space station but imagine if it was A, a space tourism craft that was in low Earth orbit and, you know, something happens and a, a tourist gets killed. That's the kind of high-profile uh, tragedy that could potentially get people finally to start acting. Um, we could also see a situation where um, maybe a few major satellites go down and you uh, experience loss of telecommunications or... Um, ugh, would really hate to see, for example, like a, a widespread shutdown of the GPS system because then people would realize just how dependent uh, our, our modern society is on, on that type of, or on that system. It could be a space weather incident where the sun lets off a lot of radiation and shuts down many satellites and then we see just how dependent we are on, on these capabilities. But my guess is it will take something quite high profile and very... Um, Uh, something that evokes a lot of emotion to get people to, to finally take action on, on some of the bigger problems. But at least for now, I think we have identified a, a few fringe issues that we can start working on and hopefully take some steps.